you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. From 1925 until at least 1927, a strangler roamed the Strawberry Mansion neighborhood of northwest Philadelphia on the edge of Fairmount Park. On this episode, I'll be revisiting some events I've already chronicled back in episodes 73, 74, and 75 when I discuss serial killer Earl Leonard Nelson. First reported was the murder of a 22-year-old black woman named Ola McCoy, who was the wife of Cornell McCoy, at 1815 Montgomery Avenue. On October 15, 1925, with her husband at work, Ola was home with her three-month-old son, also named Cornell. It appeared that she had been attacked when she was in the kitchen of the home, with there being signs of a struggle in that room and several hairpins and combs lying on the floor. It was theorized that the attacker had come up behind her, grabbed her, and shook her, dislodging the items. After unconscious, she was carried to a bedroom where her hands and feet were bound with rope, and she was strangled. It was thought with a towel that had been stuffed into her mouth. All the while, her son lay sleeping in the next room. He was unharmed. Cornell McCoy grew up to be a Philadelphia police officer, living in an apartment building only a block from where his mother had been slain. He in turn was murdered in the 1950s, shot by his common-law wife Alice Baxter. I can't help but wonder if the unsolved murder of his mother when he was a baby was very possibly what led to his later career choice. Things were quiet for a few weeks, but on November 7, 1925, police received a call from a man named Thomas Sullivan. In a stammering voice, he told them that his cousin had just been murdered. They arrived at the house at 1811 North Judson Street, a boarding house operated by a 38-year-old Irish immigrant named Mary Murray. The house was just off Montgomery Avenue, a few blocks west of where Ola McCoy had been killed. And when they got there, it was a familiar scene. Signs of a struggle downstairs, Murray lying in the bedroom upstairs, her hands bound with rope, gagged and having been strangled, in this case with a blue handkerchief still tightly knotted around her throat. After further questioning at the scene, Thomas Sullivan was arrested on suspicion. He gave inconsistent accounts and statements which seemed a bit suspicious. After a few days, however, it became apparent Thomas was also an alcoholic, and this accounted for his rambling, somewhat incoherent responses. And so Thomas Sullivan was released. 
Sullivan was released on the day that Mary Murray was buried. Ironically, the funeral for one victim was taking place while police were again summoned to the scene of a homicide. This time, a 13-year-old girl named Lillian Weiner appeared at the 26th Street Precinct House. Her mother, 33-year-old Lena Weiner, had been murdered, she said, and led Captain Whitworth and Detectives Posner and Malone to the Weiner home at 2421 North Napa Street, as well as Lieutenant Peter Scheller of the City Murder Squad, who were investigating the McCoy and Murray homicides already. She had come home from school at 4 p.m., and found the front door locked and her younger brother Hyman out front. She knocked and rang the bell several times to no avail. Finally, she climbed into the house through a window. She looked around downstairs, and not seeing anyone, ran upstairs. The door of her mother's room was closed, and when she opened it, she found her mother lying tied up on the bed, dead. She screamed and ran outside, where she was met by a neighbor named Ida Grabnik. Mrs. Grabnick sent her to the police station. Lena Weiner was the wife of a well-known tailor named Meyer Weiner. When the home was investigated, as in the Ola McCoy case, clear signs of a struggle were found in the kitchen. A hair comb lay on the floor, pots and pans were scattered around, a chair was overturned, and a crock of chopped cabbage lay smashed on the floor. One of Mrs. Weiner's stockings, ripped off and bloody, was found discarded in a corner. It seemed Mrs. Weiner had been beginning to prepare supper when attacked. A struggle apparently ensued, it certainly appearing that Mrs. Weiner had put up quite a fight. But eventually she was overpowered and rendered unconscious and taken upstairs. By this time, Dr. Jacob Kaminsky was on the scene, and as he examined the corpse, police investigated the room. Mrs. Weiner was lying on the bed, feet bound by a handkerchief. Her hands had formerly been bound, but Mrs. Grabnick from next door said that some neighbors had been in the house before the police got there and had cut those bonds to check for any signs of life. A sock had been shoved in her mouth, and a red and green necktie was wound tightly around her neck. Dr. Kaminsky said the body was still quite warm, and death had occurred no more than an hour before. Detective Pausner discovered that the gate behind the house was unlatched and swinging loose, and the back door of the house was hanging open as well. He theorized that the attacker had fled the house quickly, possibly when Lillian began to pound on the door, heading out the back gate and into an adjoining alley. It was later determined that Lena Weiner was last seen alive about 3 p.m. She had been out front of the house, cleaning the porch, returning to the house to start preparing supper. Son Hyman was outside playing at this point. A neighbor named Rachel Silver said she thought she knew what happened next. At about 3.15, she said, she heard loud voices that seemed to be coming from the kitchen of the Weiner house. She couldn't hear the other voice clearly, but she could distinctly hear Mrs. Weiner say, What do you want to do that for? Then, she said, there was silence for a moment, and then I could hear Mrs. Weiner's voice growing lower and finally stop altogether. After speaking with Meyer and a boarder named Samuel Britton when they returned from work, they also discovered that quite a few things were missing. Some of Meyer's clothes were missing. Likewise, some of Britton's clothes were taken as well, as was a toolbox of his. Around 5 p.m., the police were informed by another neighbor 
that he had seen someone loitering around the Weiner house, at one point going up the alley, opening the gate, and going into the backyard. The man seemed to have a complexion similar to a light-skinned black man. He looked to be about 35 years of age, probably 5'8 in height, had a great deal of facial hair, and peculiarly bright and flashing eyes. The police had descriptions of attackers in the other two instances as well. In both cases, the man described was said to be white, but otherwise, the appearance was similar. A few days later, on November 12th, Catherine Long, wife of Joseph Long, a probation officer, was attacked in their home at 804 North Bucknell Street, within blocks of Eastern State Penitentiary. Mrs. Long was seated near a window in her parlor when a man came up to the window, pushed it open, and grabbed the woman by the shoulders, telling her he was going to kill her and drink her blood. Police happened to be passing by, and when they turned toward the longhouse, he let her go and shouted, I'll get you later, as he ran off. Police pursued and caught the man, who proved to be a former boxer named James Tierney. Clearly, this account seems not to be connected with the Strangler case at all. But it was in the reporting of this attack that mention was made that there had been another attack around October 7th, a few days before Ola McCoy had been slain. In this instance, a man who appeared to be a light-skinned black man entered a house, had begun to strangle its inhabitant, but was frightened away by a ringing doorbell. The victim's name was never released by the police, however. As for the attack on Mrs. Long, James Tierney was convicted of this, but could not be connected with any of the other assaults. On November 13th, the very next day, Dorothy Robbins of 1722 North 18th Street, only a block away from where Ola McCoy had been killed, and directly across the street from where Cornell McCoy would be slain 30 years later, was attacked. Again, the circumstances were similar to many of the others, with an apparent light-skinned black man making an entry to the home while Dorothy was making lunch, but once more being frightened away by Mrs. Robin's screams. A few hours later, there was a second attack. Mrs. David Barish, who lived at 4044 Poplar Street in West Philadelphia, not far from the zoo, had been out back cleaning. When she re-entered the house, unbeknownst to her, a dark-complected Lithuanian named George Savage followed. He, she was bent down scrubbing the kitchen floor, and sensing someone was behind her, looked up to see Savage reaching his hands towards her. She screamed, and two patrol officers named Kamity and Laird made their way to the house and captured Savage. He was dark in complexion, about 170 pounds, and about 5'8". The description tallied well with the description of the strangler, and when they found in his pocket bills for a laundry just down the street from the pawn shop where Lena Weiner's things were sold, and it was found that none of the nine addresses he gave the police checked out, it was assumed he might be the strangler. Like Tierney, though, he ended up being charged only with the attack on Mrs. Barish, and not with any of the others. And that night, around 11 p.m., there was another attack, this time at 519 South 12th Street in South Philadelphia. Rose Young was helping her husband close up his butcher shop when a man, similar in description to the others, made his way into the building. Without any hesitation, he seized Rose by the throat, shoved a handkerchief into her mouth, 
and tossed her into a chair in the dining room. The handkerchief fell out, and Mrs. Young screamed, whereupon the man turned tail and ran. At first it was assumed to be a strangler attack, but she was later to tell police that she recognized the man who attacked her, as she had encountered him before. His name was Arthur Webb, who was arrested and definitively determined to have not been the killer. On the 15th, Mary Sperber of 2521 Harlan Street was attacked by a man who grabbed her by the throat around 10 p.m. He was captured and identified as Elmore Elmore Howe, a 30-year-old man who police were to find had a bit of a history. Having been seen by William Shore and Taylor Williams, attempting to break into homes. A 15-year-old boy named John Kane also later testified that he had been attacked by Howe. <clears throat> Not much is known about the November 20th attack on Anna Pugliusi, except that it occurred at 18th and Shunk Streets. Pugliusi kicked the man, who ran off as passersby on the street gathered. An attack on a 25-year-old partially paralyzed girl named Gladys Levin on the afternoon of November 23rd, led police down another avenue of investigation. She was attacked near the campus of Temple University. As she described the attack, I was on my way to my doctor's. As I walked east on Norris Street, I heard quick footsteps behind me and a hand grasped my neck. A voice behind me said, Pretty, don't scream. Then I felt myself becoming unconscious and was barely conscious of two men coming out of a garage in a machine. The lights of the car frightened the man, and he released his fingers from my neck. I turned and looked at him, and my nerves gave way. Then I wandered along Norris Street, not knowing where I was going. I walked blindly into the middle of the street, where I might have been killed by an automobile. Finally, I found myself at the doctor's office and tried to tell him of the attack. The attack on Miss Levin was quickly connected with another attack in the neighborhood, that on Mary Kasner at 3027 Page Street the next day. Similar to other victims, she was cleaning her front stoop and had re-entered the house when she was confronted by the dark-skinned stranger. Based on the testimony of a neighbor, Lena Altman, it was initially thought that a man named Otis Jackson was guilty but Inspector Brinton said that he didn't quite fit the description and felt that a man arrested in the connection with the Levin attack, a middle-aged man named Will Davis, was the attacker. Jackson was released, and I'm not certain whether Davis was ever convicted. But the article describing the attacks mentioned that police were looking into the possibility that the killer might be someone engaged in a subway construction project then being carried out on Broad Street but the logic used was flimsy at best, with it being pointed out that the knots used to bind the victims were the same ones used at the subway construction site, and that the timing of the attacks and murders lined up with shift changes. And then, just like that, the attacks ceased. The city had moved on and nearly forgotten about the strangler. Then, in August of 1926, 18-year-old Betty Ashbrook was in her home at 764, North 41st Street in West Philadelphia, some blocks south of where Mrs. David Barish had been attacked. She said a well-dressed man, with bright eyes and heavy brows, walked through a back door. She screamed, and the man turned tail and fled back out the door. She was outside warning neighbors, 
when two doors away at 752 North 41st Street, Elizabeth Robinson came downstairs, hearing footsteps on the lower floor. She encountered the same man that Betty Ashbrook encountered minutes before. Robinson asked the man what he was doing there. The man replied that he wanted a drink, whereupon she replied that he'd get himself into trouble entering people's houses for a drink. She eventually managed to force the man out of her house. Another neighbor, named John Herman, saw the man running into 748 North 44th Street, whose owners were absent. Police searched the house, finding no man, but finding discarded food wrappers, crumbs, and cigarette butts scattered throughout the house, indicating that clearly someone had been living there. Although the memory of the strangler attacks was brought up by the intruder, police didn't think it was the same man, as he had not even attempted to actually attack the women. They did, however, concede that he simply may not have attacked since he hadn't surprised them. In November, though, another woman was attacked. On November 2, 1926, Jenny Glenn of 2504 North 29th Street, back in the Strangler's familiar stomping grounds, was attacked. Shortly after 9 a.m., Mrs. Glenn went out front to clean and re-entered the house. When she did, she noticed a blind on a window in the kitchen, which she was sure was open, had been pulled closed. Then she heard the dining room door slam, and a man grabbed her by the neck. She wormed her way out of his grasp and threw a bottle of metal polish at him. Undeterred, he grabbed her neck again, and she beat him with a scrub brush she had been using. I screamed at the top of my lungs, she said. He tried to stuff the sleeve of his coat into my mouth to stop me, but I hit him again and screamed louder. When she screamed, her 21-year-old son Clarence, who had been sleeping upstairs, came down, and seeing this, the stranger turned tail and fled out the open back door. A neighbor, Kathleen Culbertson, said she saw the by now familiar dark-skinned man running up the alleyway. Lieutenant William Belshaw of the murder squad, still working the strangler cases, pointed out that many of the attacks, those on Mary Kasner and Jenny Glenn, for instance, had occurred on days trash was being collected, and they were beginning to look into the possibility of whether it may have been a trash collector. Belshaw also thought it likely that the man had been in prison since the attacks on Levin and Kasner, but declined to elaborate as to why. That night, 25-year-old Madeline Wuppert of 20, 2233 West Huntingdon Street was also attacked. I was returning home through an alley when I noticed a man standing in a dimly lighted portion of the passage about 75 feet from my house, she said. I thought he might be one of my neighbors and continued up the alleyway. As I approached him, I saw that it was not a neighbor, and I started to go back. He jumped towards me and pushed me against the fence. I screamed, and several neighbors ran out. The man ran away. The man answered the familiar description of the attacker. Mrs. Wolpert thought he was black, but several neighbors summoned outside thought that he was white. Several men suspected in home intrusions were arrested over the next few days, among them Raphael Pryor, Jesse Arnold, and David Sands. David Sands had been arrested loitering around the home of Jenny Glenn, and a large stain on his sweater was examined and believed to be from the furniture polish Mrs. Glenn had thrown. She became hysterical when confronted with Sands, but could not identify him as her attacker.
Another suspect was soon to enter the picture. On November 20, 1926, 76-year-old Anna Clark, who lived near the intersection of Washington Street and DeKalb Street in Norristown, was attacked and strangled by a man who had entered her store and locked the door. He intended to rob her, he said, but the suspect was arrested before he seriously injured Mrs. Clark. He proved to be a former boxer named young Joe Wolcott. Wolcott, whose real name was Carl Shackelford, was taken out of the Norristown jail and brought to Philadelphia on December 17th as a suspect in the strangling attacks there. John Morris, an employee at the pawn shop Lena Weiner's Things Had Been Found At, identified Wolcott as the man who had sold the items. Wolcott gave weak alibis, saying that he was fighting outside of Philadelphia at the times of the attacks, but refusing to elaborate as to where exactly those fights had been. When actually confronted with Wolcott, however, the pawn shop clerk failed to recognize him. He was still held in jail, however, being still charged with both the murder of Lena Weiner and several of the other attacks. On December 18th, he attacked two other prison inmates, apparently under a delusion that somebody had stolen a quarter of a million dollars from him. When they came in trying to break it up, he also fought several guards and was placed in a straitjacket. As it turned out, while he was in prison, police managed to definitively prove that he had been in jail in Pittsburgh at the time of many of the attacks, and combined with the failure of Morris to identify him, Wolcott was released and shipped back to Norristown to face prosecution for the attack on Mrs. Clark. He later retired from boxing and became a manager, dying in Boise, Idaho in 1933, of what was called rheumatism but seems to have actually been advanced syphilis. Again, the fear subsided for a time, it being several months until something else happened. On April 27, 1927, Mary McConnell, 53, was cleaning on the second floor of her home at 1942 South 60th Street in southwest Philadelphia when a knock came at the door. Thinking it was a potential home buyer, she met a man who neighbor Anna Kirkline said was stocky, 35 or 40, and looked as if he might be Greek or Italian. William McConnell, her husband, was away on business in the Wilkes-Barre area. Around 3.30 p.m., John and Alice Donovan, Mary's daughter and her husband, came to the house and found Mary's body upstairs under a bed, which was disturbed as if it had been pulled out from the wall and then pushed back after the body was deposited there. The Donovans found that a rag had been knotted around her neck so tightly that a pair of scissors was necessary to cut it off, and another was stuffed into her mouth. Some of her jewelry was missing, but Lieutenant William Belshaw said that he believed robbery was only a minor motive, as there was quite a bit of jewelry and money still left in the house. Police notified pawn shops in the area as to the description of the jewelry taken. The next day, this paid off when they were notified by the owner of a pawn shop on South Street that someone had attempted to pawn one of McConnell's rings. But the attempted seller was long gone by the time the police arrived. Like so many others before, the case went cold, with Lieutenant Belshaw saying the investigation had been hampered by the fact that the body was removed from the premises before police investigation was complete. Police were quick to draw parallels with an earlier attack on a prospective home seller, as well as the strangler attacks of 1925 and 1926. 
Mrs. Richard Harvey was at her home at 2262 North Van Pelt Street in the central part of the city on April 19th, her four children at school. The 45-year-old woman answered the door to find a man standing in her doorstep. I didn't like his looks from the start. He was a foreigner by appearance, and he had a nasty, oily smile. He must have weighed 200 pounds, and he was bald, and his clothes were greasy and stained. He pointed at our for sale sign, which has been hanging there a long time, and said he might buy the house if it suited him. I didn't like the idea of him coming in, not when I was alone, but we have been trying to sell the house, and I didn't want to turn down a sale. He annoyed me a great deal when he put his hat on his head as soon as he stepped inside. Once he was inside, he began to interrogate Mrs. Harvey about all manner of personal things, such as where her husband worked and everything about her children. He was uncomfortably uncomfortably close to her the entire time. I was becoming angry at the questions he was asking, and I guess he saw how I felt. He took another look at the front room and was apparently about to leave when, without warning, he grabbed me in his arms. I tried to struggle with him, but he clapped his hand over my mouth and whispered vile language in my ear. I resisted and broke away from him, screaming as I did so, and he turned and dashed out the front door. I ran to the window, shouting to neighbors and people on the street, but he was too quick to be caught. Nobody seemed to know which way he went. Mrs. Harvey said her attacker was about 5'7", about 40, and bald. However, others pointed out that the attacker of Mrs. Harvey might not have been the same man after all, since she was pretty adamant about the fact that he had a mustache. And besides, there didn't seem to be any actual attempt to strangle her. On April 28th, the day after Mrs. McConnell was killed, Mrs. John Foy of 5531 Locust Street policeman's wife was in her backyard hanging laundry when she saw a dark-skinned stocky man knocking at the house next door which belonged to a mrs sophie freeman and was posted for sale he received no answer and then as mrs foy told it after knocking for a few minutes the man looked over at me and asked me if there was anyone in the house i told him the house was vacant he then asked me if my house was the same as the other and when i told him it was He asked me if he could come over and look at it. I told him he couldn't, and then he made a lunge at me. I began to scream and ran into my home, slamming the door. My husband, who was upstairs, got his police revolver and searched for the man, but he had disappeared. That evening, a 15-year-old girl named Verna Alice Greenlee was walking her dog near the railroad tracks at 22nd Street and Sedgley Avenue when a man appeared and punched her several times. Kicking the barking dog a few times, he then dragged her off toward a property belonging to the Pennsylvania Railroad. The dog continued to bark, and this noise, as well as Verna's screams, caused the attacker to punch her once more and run off. Attracted by the commotion, a passing motorist picked the girl up and took her to the hospital. The man was at first assumed to be the strangler of McConnell, but though he resembled him for the most part, Verna was quite adamant about the fact that her attacker wore glasses. The attack on Greenlee, however, was only a few blocks north of Mrs. Richard Harvey's house. Then, on June 29, 1927, the mugshot of Earl Leonard Nelson, 
recently arrested in Canada for murdering Emily Patterson and Lola Cowan in Winnipeg, was positively identified by Samuel Mearns, a pawn shop clerk from Brooklyn, as the man who had pawned some items stolen from Mary McConnell's house. So Nelson was definitively the killer of McConnell. Then John Morris identified the mugshot as the man who had come in and pawned Lena Weiner's things as well. But as that had been two years before, and Morris had been wrong on a handful of identifications before, could that really be trusted? It's taken as accepted by many researchers, certainly in Harold Schechter's book at least, that Ola McCoy, Mary Murray, and Lena Weiner were Nelson victims. If they are, you can definitely see an evolution of M.O., but there's also similarities. At least Murray and Weiner seem to have been proprietors of boarding houses, as were most of Nelson's later victims. But absent was the use of any sort of pretense of running a room, or as was the case at times, buying a house. It seems at this time that he merely broke into a house and snuck up on a woman. It also seems that he may have watched the home to establish schedules, as he always managed to get there when their husbands were gone. Gagging the victim and strangling them with the aid of some sort of garrote were features that occasionally showed up in his later victims. The 1925 victims, if they were Nelson's, were several years younger than most of his later victims, who were usually in their 50s, 60s, or sometimes even 70s. Towards the end of his career, for lack of a better word, he seems to have changed back to younger victims once more. Did he change to older women after these first few, because they would struggle less? Recall that there did definitively seem to be signs of a struggle in all three cases. Items stolen from the crime scenes and pawned, as in the cases of Murray and Weiner, is a common feature of Nelson's crimes. It also seems that McCoy, Murray, and Weiner had all been raped post-mortem, which seems to confirm them as Nelson victims in my mind. All of the 1925 victims would have been pre-Clara Newman, making Ola McCoy the first of Nelson's murders. His whereabouts from March 10, 1925, when he was released from Napa State Hospital, until late in the year, when he was back in Palo Alto, California, with his wife, are unknown. As far as we know, he was on the West Coast for all of 1926, so those attacks could not have been him. Then, as we discussed, the murder of Mary McConnell in 1927 definitely was him. Then we come to the descriptions of the attacker. In almost all cases, described as a fairly average-sized man, well-dressed when clothing is mentioned, either a light-skinned black man or dark-skinned white man. I can't recall if I mentioned this in the actual episodes on Earl Leonard Nelson, but he was of Mexican descent. He was described several times as darker of skin, and I could easily see him being mistaken on quick glance for a black man. I agree that McCoy, Murray, and Weiner were victims of his. As to the other 1925 attacks, I'm not sure. There's a remarkable consistency to the circumstances of each instance. They might be failed murders by Nelson. I'm fairly certain that at least Dorothy Robbins and Mary Kasner had been potential victims. Rose Young's attack seems too different, and not enough is known about Anna Pugliusi's one way or the other. But in the long run, all we have to go on is speculation.
And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Google Map available, marked with the locations of the various episodes. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.